Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustark. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbarth and Kay Royal. Hey, everyone. This week's episode is slightly different than what you're used to because I do have a guest, but it is a guest you know very well. And that is with a, with a very particular reason. Because today I'm speaking to my co-host, who henceforth shall be known as Dr. K. Royal. <laughs> because yesterday, on Wednesday, November 10, 2021, K. completed her PhD trajectory and passed with flying. So, without further ado, my name is Paul Breitbart, but her name is Dr. K. Royal. I was about to say, and I am Dr. Doctor. Kay Royal, <laughs> pleased to be with you. Thank you, thank you. It's so welcome to Serious Privacy, Kay. How are you today? <laughs> I am wonderful. Isn't there a uh, unexpected question? Which is funny because the one that the book opened up to is how would you describe your victory dance? Which we've already used back yes. when we first had Constantine. Fortnite! <laughs> on the show. But funny enough, after my dissertation yesterday, I recorded a video uh, a victory dance to We Are the Champions, and I posted it to the Work Slack channel. <laughs> so yes, maybe the unexpected question could be, what gets you high? What, oh, chocolate. <laughs> I had so much chocolate, I couldn't go to sleep until like 1 a.m. last night, so I am dragging. But I'm still high. I'm still high on success. I know y'all heard in various podcasts, you know, me saying I'm working on my dissertation. So this was my 11th year. And... Uh, they typically want you to be done within 10 years, or there's a possibility that they could expel you from the program. And the first three years are classwork. And in your classwork, you're supposed to write on the topic you're going to do your dissertation on. That way, for three years, you're building up your body of knowledge. And it came time after classwork was done. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do my dissertation on privacy. And they're like, no, you're not. We don't have anyone to supervise privacy. And that kind of took all the motivation out of me, period. Kind of done. So that was three years. For the next five years, I, I tossed around trying to find something I cared enough about to do my dissertation on, and I couldn't find anything. I found one thing, and then they removed the part that I was most passionate about. So I was like, I, I, I. And then the U.S. federal government started having data breaches. If you remember the Oops. Office of Management and Budget, or was it was it the OMB that had the, the big, huge breach of personnel data? Yes, I think so. So my degree is in public affairs. And so I'm like, all right, can I now do it on privacy since clearly it's a public affairs issue? And they agreed. It took about another six months to a year to decide what it was going to be, which it was going to be GDPR compliance in U.S. universities. So this tells you it was right around 2018. 
We were going to do it anonymously. And the feedback I got back from people responding to the survey is, Kay, we can't answer this survey. Our responses, although as much anonymous as you can give us, might disclose that we are non-compliant with the legal requirement and we cannot expose our university to that. So that took about another year and a half of, you know, developing it, proposing it, getting it approved by IRB, and then finding out that nobody wanted to answer it. Okay, so back to the drawing board. So right at a year ago, it was approved that I could do this topic on privacy compliance in U.S. universities. So this dissertation has essentially been done just in the past year, and it was phenomenal. But I learned from the lessons of I can't ask university privacy people to give any details on their specific compliance to specific requests. So, but that is a area that could definitely use some more research. And it was awesome that the field of privacy has already responded to it. The Future of Privacy Forum put out a guide for educational institutions for privacy. So that was phenomenal while I was writing my dissertation. So I love this. I'm sorry. You know, asking a PhD student about their dissertations, like asking a new mom about their kids. And Yeah, I do not want to see the pictures, but I do want to hear the story. And thank you for joining. I have to say... Some of y'all listening were definitely probably some of the ones that joined. I don't know how many people were there. It seemed about 20 or so. Apparently, that is very, very uncommon for a PhD dissertation defense. They said typically they have about three to five guests, and it's usually the person's family. So my family was there as well. I had a couple of technical, kind of technical issues during the presentation where I was like using the wrong slide deck and I got to slide eight and was like, oops, this is blank. Hold that thought. <laughs> it was more like slide 28, Kate. You, you had about a gazillion slides. A gazillion. Well, and I think you, you heard me complaining about that. I had to have a gazillion slides. My way of doing a presentation and when we first joined it, this conversation actually came out because some of the people that I typically do presentations with were on the call. And I said, all right, I'm going to apologize to everyone. This is not a K-style presentation. And Paul can even tell you, I don't like lots of slides. And the slides I do have, I don't like lots of words. And you can and develop... The slides you do have with not a lot of words on it, you throw them out pending the conversation exactly, as well. Exactly, so. because... <laughs> If you're going to do a PowerPoint slide, you don't want people reading the slides. You want them listening to the speakers. So PowerPoint should really only enhance what is there. It shouldn't be all of it. So I had developed about 12 slides in order to do a presentation. And my chair was like, oh, no. If you give me less than 30 slides, Kay, that's like anorexic. They're dying of starvation. <laughs> And he said the typical is between like 45 to 60 slides. I wound up with 60 slides. Wow. And I was like, I hate this. But on the other hand, I didn't go to my notes on the slide and I didn't go to my actual paper in the presentation either. I didn't use any other resources. I just used what was on the screen. So I guess it helped, especially since none of them understood privacy at all. So they would have been completely lost in any type of narrative. Well, we discussed it before. This this kind of defense is so different from how we do it here in the Netherlands. But it was interesting to see and also to see that you get the full hour just to present. And after that, you went on for another hour or so behind closed doors. Yes. 
with questions from them, which was interesting. Um, the questions from the professors behind the closed door, I was prepared for them to hit me with really deep academic scholarship questions like, okay, you relied on the complexity theory framework. What was the origins of complexity theory? Which is not a big part of my paper, the origins of complexity theory. The part of my paper is how it applies to universities and how it applies to privacy law, which that is fascinating. When I found that article from the two authors, Zhang and Schmidt, I believe it was, they were studying Chinese privacy law. And as Hmm. scholars, they were trying to find a way of putting, and this has been over years, their article came out, you know, not, not this year. They were trying to find a theoretical framework that it would fit into and nothing fit. And they landed on complexity theory as it applies to privacy law, or as they put it, applies to people's behaviors towards their personal data being used in a legal context. And so it was fascinating finding that they applied complexity theory to privacy law specifically on the characteristics of complexity theory that are, you can have diverse components, which are all the laws from all the nations and the localities that can adapt and grow and change independently of each other, yet they influence each other. And through that unpredictable influence, because this came out right after Snowden's revelations in 2013, in that unpredictable influence, it can grow in ways that would not have been envisioned before they influenced each other. That's the basics of the complexity theory and how it adapts. Once you hear that put in context of privacy law, you're like, yeah, that's exactly what's happening in the world. Boom, all of a sudden this new law pops up that we really didn't see coming, and now we see other things reacting to it in ways that we didn't really anticipate. You can apply that to U.S. privacy law, California, and how often it's been changed as it grows. But yet now we're seeing privacy laws in Colorado and Virginia, and we've got some other good ones proposed now. And we don't predict how one state's laws is going to impact another state's laws until it actually comes out, it's proposed, it's passed, and then we can see, oh, They followed this law when it came to sensitive data, but they didn't follow this law when it came to having a consumer agency. Or they're enforcing this type of individual rights. And so I am not a very academic person, despite the fact that I just got my PhD. But (laughs) that was fascinating. Would it be fair to say that according to complexity theory, the mantra post hoc ergo proctor hoc oh you're gonna throw all this at me anyway aren't you oh yeah after after it therefore because of it (laughs) yes i understood it (laughs) (laughs) you should know it from the west wing yes um, that it doesn't apply to privacy law so because ccpa comes after gdpr it isn't necessarily because of gdpr right exactly and It may have been in some context to be able to track it down, but it wasn't in other contexts. And so, yeah, just because something follows something, of course, doesn't mean that it's cause and effect. It could simply be coincidence, which none of us believe in coincidence. But it's it's having this impact. I mean, who saw Quebec coming up? Well, I think quite a few Canadians did. Right. But did the rest of the world? 
Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> and Brazil. I mean, Brazil was on the the table for so, so long, and nobody was scooping up servings of it. And then all of a sudden, bam, Thanksgiving. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to keep carrying these these metaphors through, but, you know, rather than mixing them all up. But it's it's really interesting because I believe the other day, the Canadian one that should be released here soon that we were actually talking about was Quebec's law specifically designed after GDPR or was that just coincidence because so many of the privacy principles are fundamental? That's certainly true. And of course, their answer was it was specifically designed after GDPR. Which, in the case of Quebec and the relations with France, would probably make sense. Yeah, exactly. It's certainly not true for for every new privacy law of the modern generation. Or PIPL. Yeah, that's certainly not just because of GDPR. Yeah. But I do wonder if GDPR didn't spur them to pass it, to finally pass it. Maybe a little, a little. But it certainly would not be the sole reason. Yeah. So as part of your defense, you gave a whole explanation about the series of interviews that you conducted and questionnaires that you set up. Since not all of our listeners were attending your defense or would have read your dissertation by now, can you tell us a bit more? What did you what kind of questions did you put out and thank, what kind of results did you get out of it? Thank you, thank you. So, in looking at privacy compliance at US universities, uh, my chair, prior chair, I got a new chair like 6 weeks before the dissertation defense because my older chair not older, prior chair, retired, but he did attend the defense and ask questions. But he had decided that in order to introduce more academic rigor into the paper and to offset researcher bias, me, that we needed to do what's (laughs) called the Delphi method. And the Delphi method is a process where you gather together experts, typically in a room, and you have open conversation And you decide points about whatever subject it is you're asking about based on their expertise through iteration. So you usually do an open comment period first. You jot all the ideas down. There's no conversation about the ideas, whether they're good or bad. It's literally brainstorming. You're throwing everything on the wall. And then after that, you... And typically the way they'll do it is with post-it notes. You have people go around and vote for which ones they think are the top ones. Then you have open conversation about them. And then you go back and you have people vote again. And so you bubble up what are the most important issues based on the consensus of the experts. We did ours through an online survey uh, through Qualtrics. I used the anonymous link, which was good in the fact that it was privacy, privacy topic to privacy professionals that it was essentially anonymous. I can't say fully anonymous, but essentially anonymous. And it also eliminated the possibility, and this is something a lot of Delphi methods are starting to go to is the online portion. It eliminates the possibility that a very strong personality or influence would unduly influence the others. And they would agree just because that person is the person in the field or they have a strong personality. So it eliminated that part, which was really good because the privacy world does have some very strong personalities. And so the questions that went in front of them were in the open-ended part, I asked it, I asked two questions about universities in particular. 
Do you believe that managing privacy compliance at universities is complex or not complex? And every single expert answered in the complex realm. There was um, somewhat complex to complex to very complex and then not complex at all. Very not complex, you know, whatever. Every single one of them was in the complex realm out of seven choices, including neutral. The second question is, how do you feel that universities are in managing privacy compliance? And those range from very ineffective to very effective. And the majority, overwhelming majority of them were in the middle, somewhat ineffective to somewhat effective, including neutral. So that was 80% of the answers. And then there was 4% for each one of ineffective and effective and another large 12% on very ineffective. And so it was good to get their consensus right up front that managing privacy compliance at universities, specifically universities in the U.S., was very complex and that universities are not effective at managing privacy compliance. They wanted to know why didn't I specifically focus on privacy officers at universities and only get their intake? Well, there are two problems. One, there aren't that many privacy officers at universities that handle privacy across the board. That's still a very, very immature field. Complexity theory would say the privacy compliance at universities grew up in different areas. So if they had medical, they grew up HIPAA privacy compliance. For student records, they grew up, you know, FERPA privacy compliance. For GLBA, which shocks most people that GLBA applies to universities, Graham-Leach-Bliley Act over financial services, because who thinks of universities as financial entities? But they offer student loans and they take payments and they do things. So they, they do qualify. But funny enough, universities, if they are compliant with FERPA, the Family Educational Rights Privacy Act, If they are compliant with FERPA, they are deemed to be compliant with the GLBA privacy or portion. The only thing they have to then add is the security. And so that would have grown up in the financial services part of the university. So you can see how under the complexity theory, these independent programs grew up. They were self-organized. They were self-adapting. Yet they should and do have influence on each other within that, that university's environment. So with that, and then the other questions, the upvoting questions that we have were what data subjects trigger privacy laws? What activities do universities engage in that trigger privacy laws? What privacy laws apply to universities? Or, I also gave the experts this option, or have the most impact on the study I'm undertaking right now? And then what privacy program elements need to be present in order for a university to have a successful privacy program? And then what risk factors are in place that universities would not be able to comply with privacy laws because of it? That question was misinterpreted in the first leg, in the open answer. I got a lot of answers as what risks do universities face? Loss of funding, loss of trust, different things like that, as opposed to what risk factors would impact their privacy compliance. And that in itself was also very informative because it also um, reinforced that the risks that universities face are the same risks that any company faces. Loss of trust, loss of reputation, loss of funding, loss of customers, you know, is right across the board. And so 
frankly, mm-hmm. privacy officers at universities don't face any additional privacy laws, perhaps with the exception of FERPA, because it really doesn't have enough teeth to impact vendors. But they really don't manage any more or less privacy laws than a privacy officer at a Fortune 100 company would. They just get paid less. But they handle the same realm of laws. And that's the hardest part, especially for the dissertation committee. That's the hardest part for people to understand. And so it was interesting because people outside the U.S., and this is one metric I didn't put in the paper, but the privacy professionals that responded that were located outside the U.S., don't understand U.S. law well enough to understand that not all laws apply across the board. They're sectorally based. But it was really interesting to see their responses in how this was governed because so many of laws outside the U.S. do apply to universities. Yeah. And universities don't necessarily understand that. And I would I would perfectly understand that there are sexual laws in in the U.S. that would apply to universities. But if you tell me, name them all, right. I have absolutely no idea how to do that. Yeah. With the 400-something sexual laws on privacy and data protection that currently exists in the U.S., that's, See, that's almost impossible to keep up. Either. <laughs> you once again didn't check Nimity Research before well, I you did, published your paper. I did. It was so funny. <laughs> I tried so hard. There's a lot of information, frankly, that you and I have put out. In white papers, in guides, in blog entries, I didn't quote blog entries, that I wanted to turn around and cite for the paper because we've put out really good information, but I was trying really hard to avoid citing myself often. You well, know that, I mean? is, that is fair. Although as a good academic, you are entitled to cite yourself, certainly now that you do have the PhD. Right, exactly. So, But it, it was really good. They asked me what surprised me about the findings. And the one part that surprised me in the Delphi method, in the expert upvoting, was how, when I asked what laws impact, I wasn't expecting broad categories of laws, like data retention laws, breach notification laws. I, I don't know that I necessarily had an expectation But I think I was expecting specific laws, GDPR, HIPAA, FERPA, GLBA, you know, UK GDPR, the DPA, the POPIA, the, how do people say the Canadian one, the the PIPIDA, the, all these specific laws and what I got and what actually wound up being the highest upvoted category. The only specific upvoted laws were FERPA, HIPAA, and GDPR. Otherwise, every single one of them was a category of laws. So half of which fell under the uh, fair information practice principles, which have been around since, I don't know, Medusa. Midas? Methuselah? I don't know. Been around a long time. Methuselah, I would say. Thank as you. old as Methuselah. Thank you. So, you know, I was expecting those as opposed to the, the subject-specific, half of which, as I said, were FIPS, half of which were just uh, categories of laws. And uh, so that was probably the only surprise I had, which was really good. That's why we did it. It's just, it was hard for the committee to understand when they asked about my expert population and how I did the sampling. I had to go into a lot of detail to explain that when you have experts answering the Delphi, they are not representative of a population. They are purposefully 
selected and invited to participate solely on the basis of their expertise. And I had to explain that multiple times, not just during the defense, because they couldn't understand, well, does this mean you did a convenience sampling? It's not a sampling. It is specifically invited experts. And no, I didn't personally know every single one of them. But yes, I professionally know every single one of them. And I think it would be it would be hard because let's be honest. I mean, most privacy professionals would have a higher education, for example. So yeah. that in itself already makes it hard to have a fair sample of society. Exactly. But, you know, the Delphi is used in lots of different ways when people are trying to solve a problem that relies on expertise because you don't want a representation of the population. You want the expertise of very unique identified experts to actually participate. So that was really good. The second part of it is there was a sample of universities, public universities and private nonprofit universities. We chose number one and two by the U.S. News and World Ranking and then randomly chose two each under each one. Under the public universities, number one and number two were both University of California schools. So I chose a number three for that, which was University of Michigan. And so we had nine schools total in the sampling, and I took the outcome of the Delphi, the data subjects, the activities, the laws, the privacy program, the risk factors, And I looked for publicly available information on every single one of those for all of them. And the sample universities ranged, as I said, from University of California, L.A. to Stonechild College, which is a tribal college on a very small reservation that offers one bachelor's degree. But wow, it qualified as a uh, that one might have been as a private nonprofit, might have been a public. I don't remember. But it qualified under its category and was randomly selected and it offered a bachelor's degree. So it met the criteria. And it did not have most of the elements. But yet, based on its level of activities, as they should, it didn't need them. Okay. Because it didn't engage in those kinds of activities. It didn't have those kinds of data subjects. It didn't have sports teams. You know, well, so. If you only have one bachelor, then yeah, that's Exactly. Unlikely. They didn't have research activities. They didn't run a medical clinic or a student hospital that was open to the public to trigger HIPAA. So it was interesting that, yeah, they didn't have them, but they didn't need them. They didn't have yeah. the activities and the data subjects that triggered the privacy laws. So that was fascinating to go through and look at. And of course, here in the U.S., there's only one locale-based category for people to qualify for, and that's California, because California is the only state that actually has an omnibus privacy law. But yet, quite a few of them, of course, triggered GDPR. I even had it in China when China was passed, because most of the upper-level sample universities have specific activities in or with China. Yeah. So that was really interesting. And then the last part was taking the document analysis, the findings from the Delphi, and putting it in terms of the law. So saying, okay, you say FERPA is important. Let's go look and see how important is FERPA. Okay, it's important because it applies, but it really has no teeth. We, I actually did studies on how busy the Department of Education has been in their fer enforce, FERPA enforcement And the fact that studies have come out from the Office of Inspector General in the Department of Education stating that they're overwhelmed. They can't keep up with the letters of investigation. 
that they're getting. And it took over a year. There was one complaint against one sample university that I had, and it took them over a year to settle that complaint with the findings of, you know, there was no malfeasance done here. So, but it was on attorney-client privilege. A student had requested records and the university had declined based on attorney-client privilege. Interesting. So did you share the outcomes of your, of your studies with the respective universities for their comments? I did not, but I can. So Will that, you? Yeah, I, I would like to do that for them to see because that, that would be interesting. And I want to continue with this. Not that I specialize in privacy at U.S. universities, but it is an area that hasn't received attention. No, not a lot. That is certainly true. And did you, just for fun, also look at the University of Arizona to check what they did? <laughs> a little. <laughs> Wasn't part <laughs> of the study. I looked at Arizona State. I know I would. <laughs> I looked at Arizona State University, which is uh, where I teach and where I've graduated. And I also looked at University of Texas at Dallas, which is where my degree is through. And funny enough, I have a footnote in there about HIPAA being one of the most complicated, one of the most misunderstood laws that we have. Everyone thinks HIPAA applies to all their medical. And during this time of pandemic, universities, of course, had a lot of privacy issues online proctoring, contact tracing. I mean, it just went crazy. And so one of the issues that came up about HIPAA is that the University of Texas at Dallas, on their website, they require us to answer questions about COVID every day. Even though I haven't been on campus in eight years and I don't live in the state, I still have to answer the question or risk <laughs> academic probation. And wow. uh, I've argued with them about it to, to, you know, no avail. But it's interesting that they have a set of FAQs on there. And one of their FAQs is, can a professor ask a student about their vaccination status? And the response from the university publicly is, no, that's a HIPAA violation. Well, it's not. But... It's still undesirable. If you want to scare professors and, and make them not ask, maybe that's a good way to scare them. And there's a lot of reasons professors shouldn't be asking students, but HIPAA ain't one of them. So, yeah, there's a lot of misunderstanding. I volunteered to help the university with their privacy FAQs around COVID. They just, you know, ignored. I was going to do it for free, but hey, what can I say? But they also require everyone to show up for vaccines? I guess they're doing free vaccines or testing. I don't know. And of course, they made it mandatory that I had to participate in that too. And I'm like, I am not flying or driving to Texas merely to get tested. <laughs> no, that seems a bit overdoing it. But they are reasonable on that. There must be some testing facility in Arizona if they really insist you to get a test. If they really need it. But Arizona State University requires everyone who works there to upload their vaccination status. So... And I just mm. saw that there was a U.S. Was it a U? No, no, no. It was a federal court, not the U.S. Supreme Court, but it was a federal court decision that just determined that Texas's ban on mask mandates for schools violates the Americans with Disabilities Act. So there's still a lot of legalities around COVID, but a lot of privacy concerns as well. So it's, it's, I mean, it's fascinating. Everybody should love the topic they do their dissertation on. I mean, you got to live it and breathe it for so long. You should love it. But you and I were also talking about how the process works differently. So thank you so much for joining. 
yesterday. Oh my gosh, I smiled when I saw your face on there. <laughs> of course I was there. Thank you, thank you. If and any of my friends does a PhD defense, I want to be there, whether it's halfway across the world or in my backyard. Well, and Marie Pinot was also there from France. Yeah, it's always a special, uh, special occasion. Uh, you always learn something. You do. One day, I hope I can return the favor. I hope so, too. What differences did you notice? Well, of, of course, this was now all online, and, and the online defense here in the Netherlands would also be different. But what what would happen here is that you have one or two promoters and, and a co-promoter. So that's basically like your chair and okay. the co-chairs who guide you through the process and make sure that your dissertation has sufficient academic quality. But you need to finalize the book before you can even defend it. So Now, how long are y'all's dissertations? It can be anything between 150 and 700 pages. Okay, that's, that's about the same here. One of my uh, former law students, one of my favorite students, became a lawyer, and then she got her PhD. During this whole time, I was working on mine, of course, and so the student who became a teacher, and she was there yesterday as well, Her dissertation was also on privacy in the records management realm. Uh, She got her degree in Canada. And I'm looking up at my board where I outline my chapter. And her substantive portion of her PhD paper was 300-something pages. And that's considered a little long here. All the others went up to in the the mid-100s. Yeah, I've got the... The, the book that Hilke Heimans wrote, he is currently a director at the Belgian DPA, used to be at the EDPS. He wrote the European Union as a constitutional guardian of internet privacy and data protection, the story of Article 16 of the European treaties. Fascinating! And that's, it is fascinating, but that is basically 580 pages oh, of Oh, wow. And they publish them as books after? I mean, show me in the visual. Yeah. See, we don't publish them as books. Everything is always published as a book. That's the precondition. Oh, interesting. Ours are always published, but just not as books. They're just available. Yeah, no. You need a book. And moreover, you need to have prepositions. And traditionally, there are 10. So a few that relate immediately to your dissertation. A few that relate to the broader topic of uh, of your dissertation. So could be five about GDPR and then five more or four more about general privacy issues. And then usually there is one, the odd one out, that is more a personal preposition, but that still needs to have some sort of link with your dissertation. So when you say these prepositions, are they part of the dissertation or are they papers put out in advance or they become part of the book? So no, they're, they're propositions. So they're just one or two sentences. Ah, okay. So, for example, Hilke has, as one of the propositions, trusting government requires both law and practice. When it comes to EU policies on privacy, the general data protection regulation was the easy part. The practice will be the real challenge. So that is basically sort of a one of your conclusions formulated as a proposition. And that is also what you defend. Okay, so like a hypothesis that you prove or disprove. Yeah. Okay. And you are requested to discuss your propositions with the with the academic committee. So there are five to seven professors, which are not your chairs, 
that are invited by your chairs to question you on Ooh. the proposition and on the theory behind that it. That is different. That's cool. And you have exactly 45 minutes to do that. Yes, yeah, you could tell we were we were a little, yeah, you have about an hour. Yeah, no, you have about 15 minutes to give a layman's speech, a general introduction for everybody, for your family, for your friends. And that can be in your mother tongue if your PhD is in English. So that can be done in Dutch. And then if your PhD is in English, also the language of the defense would be in English. And there's all kinds of formalities uh, like you would address the U.S. Supreme Court. May it please the court. Oh, well, wow. Also, those kind of formalities exist in how you address opposing counsel. Basically, it's like that. Then you were just fascinating watching this Wild Wild West presentation yesterday, huh? Well, that's, a, that's more like the layman speech that we would yeah. have. Only we would have it in 15 minutes instead of an hour. An hour. And of course, the, the real questioning in your case took place behind closed doors. Yeah. And that is public here. And then after the, the 45 minutes, the official representative of the university comes in in dress robes and announces, Hora est, it is time. And then the committee withdraws and you wait for 10, 15 minutes for the result. Yeah, it and didn't take the committee long diploma. and they were happy to let people back in. But, you know, given the way that the online invites were set up, it's not like everyone could withdraw to like a virtual waiting room. You would have had to yeah. put out an announcement back and tell people to join back in. And I went back in just in case. And there were two people that came back in. And so that was good to share them. But I'm like, I'll just, you know, tell everybody that. So, yeah, it's different. But maybe one day you will be able to experience I do want to get one in Europe. After having talked with you about it last year and most of this year about how it works in Europe, I'd love yeah. to get one. And every country in Europe is different because the Netherlands is not Belgium, is not Germany, is not the UK. So Everyone's different. I would love to get one over there. I think I'm on a mission now to get as many letters as humanly possible behind my name. Well, just give me time and then I'll write my book. <laughs> I'm excited for that because you've talked about perhaps doing that. It's something you want, right? It is something I want. and It's never too late, Paul. It will be on accountability and just not finding a good time to start writing. No, not surveillance. <laughs> well, I was absolutely thrilled to do mine. Absolutely thrilled to have passed it. Now I've got to follow up with all the administrative stuff of turning in the paper and the copyright and the site checks and, you know, all that stuff that's the formal approval. But yes, as soon as it's done, well, actually now I think I can publish it as a pre-published paper to share with people. But yeah, it's fascinating. We'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah, it's awesome. And on that note, we'll wrap up this extraordinary episode of Serious Privacy. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to contact us via, via seriousprivacy at trustark.com. Join the conversation on our LinkedIn page. Just look for Serious Privacy or reach out via Twitter. And that would be at Podcast Privacy. You can find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as Joe Paul B. Until next week, goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. 
TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions.